God has rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son he loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at this Son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. You received Christ Jesus, the master. Now live him. You're deeply rooted in him. All right, good morning, Trinity Church. How you doing? It's great to see you today. We were missing you last weekend. Hilke did a great job preaching as we finished up our series, Where You Fit It at Trinity, and talking about the one another's, praying for one another. You're gonna see today, as we kick off a brand new series, we're actually gonna see another one of these great Pauline prayers, like Paul praying over a church, and so I'm excited to get to look at that with you today. My name's Todd Arnett, I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity, and if you have a Bible today, we're gonna begin in the book of Colossians. They're gonna be there for the next nine weeks, and walking our way a little bit through this great um, letter to this group of new believers, and I'm excited to look at it with you. If you have your Trinity this week, you have some notes that look like these, these yellow ones, if you wanna get those out, have those ready, that'll just help you track with us. You'll notice the notes are a little thicker than they've been over the summer. We, most of our home groups take a break, and so now we're beginning in this new series. A lot of our groups are starting back up this week. So you'll notice the prompts for your questions and your interaction this week, and they'll be coming uh, through the rest of the series and throughout this new ministry season. So we're excited to begin to get that way again. Well, the reason that we were gone last week is that we were taking our number two, our daughter Aaliyah, up to college. Here's a picture of us crying uh, together. And um, so just a great experience and so excited. She's exactly, I believe, and I think not only her mom, but she believes that's exactly where she should be up at William Jessup University. So we're glad to get her going. There's a lot of parents that are going through that same stage right now. And so we're one of, of you in that and uh, just praying for you in that transition and getting them launched well. So it's all, all good stuff. Uh, just a little bit challenging to walk through. Well, we are excited as we begin today's a brand new series. You saw the video called Rooted. Again, I always appreciate our, our uh, communications team, uh, Chris Petnack, Chris Dowdy with our video, and then our decor team. You notice these shapes on the back. I love that. And this is going to be so great to light in all kinds of different ways and just a, a really good ambiance for our series. And, and we're calling this series Rooted because actually, as you understand our mission, we are called to be a people who are rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. And that, that one of the main texts that that idea comes from is in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter two, where we'll get to in a couple weeks. So we just thought that was very appropriate to call this series the idea of, of what does it mean? And that's what really Colossians is about, is the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. And so like growing up sometimes, you know, you're in Sunday school and a teacher asks you the question you don't know, so you just say Jesus. Just say that every week in the book of Colossians. It, the right answer is gonna be Jesus every time. And it's just a great book to get to walk through together, so I'm really excited to dive in. As you said a minute ago, the, the beginning of Colossians begins with this prayer that Paul prays over this local congregation, and just, it's, it's the, the, uh, another example of what we looked at last week of these one another's that we ought to, we're called to, pray for one another. And you're gonna see the substance 
Not just the call to pray, but the substance of Paul's prayer for them. So it's going to be rich. So here's our goal today as we walk out of here. We want to be a people, if you see our, our now what statement in your notes and on the screens, we want to be a people who pray that the Jesus followers in your world would live fruitful lives pleasing to God. That is a, a, a biblical mandate. Remember we said the one another's are not suggestions. They're imperative verbs calling us to something. And as we see today, this is a great way to know how to pray for the people in our worlds. So we're going to dive in today. Number one in your notes, Jesus is the basis for us being family. Jesus is the basis or the reason for why we're family. We're beginning in Colossians chapter one, right at the beginning, verse one reads this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. If you're familiar with the, the New Testament, you'll know that Paul's introduction, his, his greeting is very similar to many of his other letters. And it's important as he begins, he identifies a few important things. And that's what I wanna even begin with today. I don't know about for you, but I was really blessed in high school to have a couple US history teachers just make history come alive, make it very practical, very real. So I went to Kaipa High just up the road and I had a guy named Kent Hayden for my uh, uh, US history class. But then we had another teacher named Mr. Lockard. And Mr. Lockard would come in and he would share, and I remember specifically in different sections during that 11th grade year, he, when we were in the Civil War era, he would come in, and what he would do is he would begin to say, you know, I, I came, I've come in for a couple days to teach, and this is what he brought to the table in a very unique way, is he would actually get out letters. Now, he didn't have the actual letter, but he had the content. He would share with us the letter, let's say, of a, a plantation owner in the South writing to a friend, and he'd give us all the background, who was writing, who was receiving it, and what was the context of the letter. Or he'd, or he'd read a letter from a, a soldier from the North writing to his mom, and just give us all those wonderful things and all of a sudden now when he goes to read the letter it is rich because you you know some more things about it this comment he made has more significance that's what I love as we dive into this series I want you to get in tune today with the author with the audience and with the occasion it even made me think a little bit of uh, letters that you and I've received this is a letter I dug out yesterday and it looks very normal right it's a little white envelope and if you were to look at the um, the paper itself it's just lined paper um, but this is a letter from Joanna, uh, written in 1991. So it's 27 years ago, if my math is right. And uh, she wrote it to me, and as I was looking at it, um, I was realizing, uh, just again, the context. I was on a missions trip for the entire summer before my senior year of college. And uh, so for three months, I'm in Germany. And, and she wrote me letters. I, this, this box I was looking at was all full of letters and cards she'd written to me during that time. And I noticed this one is about three weeks before I was scheduled to come home. And I was rereading it yesterday, and it's just when you know the context, you know who's writing it, you know who it's written to, who's receiving it. And then you realize that I'm almost about to get home. It's been two and a half months overseas. I'm about to get home, and the, the letter is just so filled with this anticipation. I remember reading it, and in the same way going, this has been so good where I've been, but I cannot wait to get home and to get to see you. And that context and understanding those things really helps things become more alive to us and more aware. So let's, let's do the same thing as it relates to uh, this letter. Paul, number one in your notes, Paul is the author. He said that right out of the beginning. Most evangelical commentators would agree that Paul actually wrote the book of Colossians from a Roman jail cell or maybe have been under house arrest, but he was basically imprisoned at this time around A.D. 62. 
And uh, within that, you'll note that he even mentioned Timothy is there with him. He included him in the greeting. And this is the occasion. Now, the other interesting thing is Colossians was written during this season that Paul wrote in a few other letters. I was thinking about this today, you know, when, when I'm sure Paul and even his uh, just people who had been so blessed by his ministry, when they heard that he was imprisoned in Rome, must have thought, oh, the world's caving in. How is the gospel going to go forth? You have to realize Paul wrote Colossians. Well, let's start. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written during this season. We call them the prison epistles. Philemon is actually written to an individual. The other three are cities, but Philemon was an individual who lived in Colossae, the book that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of months. And you realize that what seemed like the worst possible thing, how is Paul going to keep planting churches? How is he going to encourage those that he's led to faith when he's in prison? That's okay. He's going to write to them. And he's going to write under the the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? 2,000 years later, we're reading it. We are benefiting, and it's always that sense of perspective. God, I can't see what you're doing, but can I trust you in the middle of it? And I just think about how powerful it is that during that season, this is the book that we get to read today. Now, most commentators, and we'll see some comments like this throughout the book, most commentators would suggest that Paul never visited Colossae. He had never been there before. And then it's a great question like, well, what is he doing writing them? Why would you write a letter? But the interesting thing is we'll see in our text today that a guy named Epaphras, Epaphras was from Colossae, had been in Ephesus. Paul planted a church there, was leading that church for about three years. And Epaphras had come to know Jesus during that time and went back home to his people, back home to his community and shared this great news of Jesus. Once that had happened, Epaphras comes back again to Ephesus and he shares with Paul what's going on. So that's kind of that we'll see in a second, the occasion of the letter, a group of people he's never met. He's excited about what God's doing in their midst, but he's going to give them even some ideas and some concerns he has based on what his buddy Epaphras is gonna tell him about. So we'll see that a little bit more. Here's three main things to remember about his, the, the authorship of this book. Number one, it's written to a people he had not yet met. It's written from jail. And then thirdly, it's written on, on, with this substance about how incredibly essential Jesus is to everything about us. He's writing about the supremacy of Christ. That's the main substance. Let's, let's, let's talk about the audience a little bit. This is a church in your notes, a church at Colossae. Is who he's writing to. I want to tell you a little bit about the city, first and foremost, as we get to know it. It was once a significant city on a trade route through Asia. I want to show you a map, and you can see a little bit of where um, uh, Colossae was in relationship. You'll see way on the far side out at the coast is the city of Ephesus, and it was about 120 miles to Colossae, which you'll see big and bold on the opposite side. And we'll talk about the other two cities as well, Hierapolis and Laodicea. And if you look at the route, you look where it goes, it looks like, yeah, that's kind of right in queue with someone who was traveling from maybe somewhere um, east of Colossae all the way out to the coast. And Ephesus was a huge cultural, uh, commercial, even religious center of of the first century. So it would have been a natural path to go that way. But the interesting thing is when Paul writes this letter at the turn of the century, about 62 AD, Colossae had actually become very insignificant. It was once on this major corridor, but the trade route had shifted to the south. So no one needed to go through Colossae to get to important places like Ephesus. And I was thinking about that, like how to, how to think about that contextually, what kind of thing would we be talking about? If you live here, don't, be, don't feel slighted this morning, but it made me think of San Bernardino. 
You know that San Bernardino was once an incredibly important part of, of cultural and economic history here in California. You know why? Because McDonald's started there. It had to be huge, right? <laughs> this is a big deal. Worldwide, you know, San Bernardino's important. But, but within that, San Bernardino was this crossways. It was going north. It was the last kind of major area you went to before you went up the Cajon Pass, traveling east and west kind of through California. It was right there, what is now on the 10 freeway, obviously. And so it was, it was a really important place. But you can tell when you drive through San Bernardino, it does not have the kind of economic and, and socioeconomic base that it had maybe 50, 100 years ago. And, and you see that, that shift, and now all of a sudden you kind of go this, because this is what I want you to get this lens. When Paul writes to a church at Colossae, maybe it's a little bit like he's writing to new believers in San Bernardino, where their significance as a community, as, a, as, as this geographic point has changed, but the gospel is alive and it's changing lives. And so that's kind of, I think, a, a maybe a like-like a, a that we could relate to a little bit in our community. Um, we talked about Colossae. You saw the maps a little bit of where it's from. Here's another look of this kind of section of Colossae related to Laodicea and Hierapolis. I've told you before I had the incredible privilege of getting to go and visit and do a study tour within Turkey. And it's interesting when you see these three particular cities of then and now, what you know of them. Hierapolis is this amazing city where it's got this, these mineral deposits that roll over the side of cliffs that look like it's like um, icicles that are running down. It's just white and it's beautiful. It's really known for these hot springs and people go and enjoy that. Laodicea was an incredible commercial center, still is today, related to textiles and other types of medical um, uh, treatments that were, were, uh, were crops and different things in that city. But Colossae, in relation, those two, even today, you can go and uh, Hierapolis is still this main uh, tourist attraction. Laodicea um, is more of a textile area, but there are some ruins that have been excavated, and that's as, as, as people who are wanting to understand biblical history, those were the kind of sites we went to. But our, our guy who's in charge of our trip, my friend Kurt, Kurt said, we gotta go to Colossae. And, and the tour guide was like, mm, why do you want to go there? So we, we went off, and, and when we got there, I wanted to show you pictures. This is the sign that you see for the metropolis of Colossae. And then you look a little further, and this is what you see. It's literally a mound of dirt. Nothing has been touched. No excavation, no anything, as though it never even existed. The only way you'd know it was there, if you could zoom in on that sign, you'd see some of it written in a native tongue and some in English, and you'd see some brief explanation of what it contributed literally hundreds of years ago. It's a mound. And so we think of that, and we kind of go, man, the cultural significance. It, let me say this in the nicest way I can. Nobody on the planet cares about Colossae except for Christians because there's a book written to them. Otherwise, it wouldn't even be understood or known that it's ever even happened. But we see this value of how the gospel took root and grew and was actually incredibly productive among this group of people. So that's a little bit, but remember what we're talking about today, though this group of people lived in the city, Paul didn't write a blanket letter to a, a geographic center, he wrote it to people. And interestingly enough, like we just said, when he said he's writing to the brothers and sisters, literally in the original Greek language, he's saying, I'm writing to those who are out of the same womb. We are connected. And, and that would be a question that I think would be fair to ask. What does that even mean? How can we have that kind of connection we've never even met? And this is what's so beautiful. Paul's saying, because we share in the same Savior, we have this connection. Even though we've never met before, Jesus is the reason we have relationship. 
Jesus is the center of this thing. And I just think that's so profound and so beautiful to process even from the very beginning. He is the reason there's a, a cause for him to write and how he wants to encourage them. So this is the, the audience a little bit when we understand who they were. I was thinking this morning, as Ken and Deb were sharing about IFC, there are some of the students that are coming to us in our Inland Empire that already follow and love Jesus, and many do not. But imagine you were at the IFC team, and one of your first events in September, October, you interact with someone from India or interact with someone from Africa, places you've never been, you've never met them before, but as the conversation ensues, you come to find out that they're a follower of Jesus, and now all of a sudden, though you're from different continents, though you've never met, there is something, a connection now, if you understand, like Paul understood the Colossians, we are bound even tighter than we would of people that we live among who don't yet follow Jesus because we have this commonness in him. And so it's just a beautiful way for us to even understand how we're connected to other Christians as well. Here's the occasion in your notes to instruct followers of Jesus that he, capital H, he is enough. He is enough. This is what had happened. Paul received word back, and we'll see this more and more in the text. He'd received word back from Epaphras, who, remember, had not only planted the church, but now was coming and giving him a report. Epaphras, as excited as he was about how the gospel was taking root, he was concerned about the fact that there were some things already in this brand new group of believers. There are some things that he's concerned about that are also taking root, that are also beginning to become common. And one of those was the main thing was that the, the different belief systems that were in the community of Colossae, what people in essence were doing, and there's nothing about this that has changed 2,000 years later. They were taking Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus is great, and I can combine him with this other belief system that I have, or I can combine him with the, the faith system of my parents, or I can combine him with these other things that locally I also believe as well. We call it syncretism. It's actually just trying to add Jesus to the mix, and what you're going to see again and again and again in Colossians is Jesus alone is the reason we're saved. Jesus alone is the reason we have redemption, forgiveness for our sins, and it's Jesus plus nothing else. I love this quote. I found it in a commentary on this passage. It says this, Paul's concern wasn't that there was some overt immorality in the new church that would necessarily deny Christ, but that there were deviant doctrines that threatened to, to dethrone Christ from his rightful preeminent place in their lives and practice. And as we're going to see in the book of Colossians, Paul is very concerned about their, their doctrine, about their theology, but he's also very concerned about the natural overflow of how that should pace and how that should uh, demonstrate itself in their lives. So another way of saying it, Paul was very concerned about their orthodoxy, but equally concerned about their orthopraxy. We're not going to be a people who just know things. We're going to be a people who know them and put them to motion, put them into use in our lives. It should change the way we live. Christ needs to be all in all, and we're going to see that so thickly throughout this book. So let's dive in a little bit more to Paul giving some explanation. Number two in your notes, the gospel by nature continues to grow and does so primarily through relationships. The gospel by nature continues to grow and does so primarily through relationships. What Paul's going to say is that the gospel in and of itself, the, the DNA of what this great news is to humanity will grow. And the reality is it usually does primarily from relationship to relationship. Look at his explanation, chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
Look at that. This, you are on our minds in our prayers. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul begins letting them know, we, Paul and Timothy, others that are with him, they're wrong. We are praying for you. And, and just how encouraging is that right out of the gates, we don't just know of you, we have been praying that this great news of Jesus would take root, that it would grow, it would be productive in and through your lives. And it's important, Paul says, what's happening among you is not unique. Wherever the gospel goes, wherever this great truth of Jesus lands, people are responding in faith. They are putting their lives in his path and saying, I want to not only be saved from my sin, but I want to live a life that looks like Jesus. So he's giving them this kind of robust idea of what's going on. Now, you notice a couple of words there that were familiar to you. It's interesting. They're, they're repeated all throughout the New Testament, usually tripled. I'd say coupled, but there's three words. Tripled together, and it's faith, hope, and love. And here you saw it, and he says, Paul writes, he says, I'm so grateful for your faith and your love. And what does he say? They spring from your hope in heaven. So interestingly enough, our, our staff, some of you don't know this, we meet every Thursday morning for those who are here that day, right over here in the fireside room, just for a quick devo and a time of prayer together. It's, it's a, a wonderful just custom of what we do, a habit, and I love it. And this last week, as we were getting ready for the series, we just mentioned about what is the relationship? What is the relationship between our, our fixation on heaven and how we live in this world? And here in the text, what we see is we see that, that the Colossian believers had faith, meaning they trusted God for what he had done for them. This Jesus they had never met. They not only never met Paul, they never met Jesus. They were trusting him for that, but they also had a love, not just for God, but it says for other people. But where do these things come from? Are they just because they're really great people? No, they spring from the hope that they have in heaven. And what we talked about in our brief devotional time is very few of us will ever be accused of, of being too focused on heaven. Our gaze is so often down, so often down on our trials and our situations, our concerns. And even if it's not in our immediate family, it's still on the concerns of those in, in our relational world or in our community or even in our country. And they just ripple out. We're always kind of down here worried about all these things and, and they need attention. But here's the point. For anyone who's a follower of Jesus, if your focus is here, you're missing it because Paul says so clearly in another letter, you are no longer a citizen of this world, but a citizen of heaven. This is where our aim should be. Rather than our gaze being lowered, we need to raise our gaze and be on this idea that God, because what you have promised to me is sure. Remember the biblical word for hope isn't the fact like we might say, I hope it's not gonna be foggy this morning. Which, by the way, wasn't that awesome? It's like I woke up to Seattle today. This is so great. Oh, I'm sorry. You, a lot of you that are here, you weren't up as early as I was, so you didn't even know it was foggy. But uh, it was beautiful this morning, a great welcome change. But that kind of hope is just wishful thinking. That's our English word for hope. Biblical hope is nothing like that. It is a confidence and a promise that has been made. So the hope of heaven, this reality, God, no matter what happens here, I'm assured of there. 
And that is going to do something to me. That is going to motivate me. Look in your notes. Look at the way we put it. These things, this hope of heaven, the confidence of heaven indeed ought to be a motivator, ought to be a catalyst for our behaviors here on earth. Things should be different because we remember constantly, this isn't my home, and I am bound to spend eternity with God forever around his throne. That motivates me to live in a way that pleases him now. Paul goes on to say this phenomenon of the growth of the gospels going on everywhere. He wants them to understand this isn't just unique in Colossae. Everywhere the gospel goes, people are responding to it. They're realizing that Jesus came for them, for God so loved the world, and it's taking root in people's lives. He wants them to know they're a part of a much bigger thing than just their community. He goes on to confirm what they already know. Epaphras was the one that Paul's affirming went to you. Once he had heard the gospel himself, he brought it back to your community, brought it back to his people. And he shared this great news with Jesus, not only with his hometown, but then went back to give Paul a report and to tell them about their faith, their responses, and even some of the problems that they were facing. And that's kind of the, the, the context of now where Paul's writing from. And I gotta tell you, every time in the New Testament, and it's not that it's irregular, it's very constant. I love seeing the Epaphras-like stories. I love seeing them again and again that when someone understands and responds to the gospel, they wanna share it with people, they wanna go back to their community. They wanna go back to their relational world and let them know this great news that they've come in contact with. And that gives us continued um, encouragement that we're on the right track. As we as a church are people wanting to live lives rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds, these Epaphras-like stories, they encourage us because God can use us too. Who would have ever thought that a guy like Epaphras, the guy didn't know the Lord, he'd lived his whole life apart from him, but he comes in contact with the gospel from Paul. He's not some eloquent guy. He's not some amazing communicator. He's normal Epaphras. But he comes back to his people completely transformed. They not only hear what he's saying, but they see how he's living and they say, this is something we want to know more about. This gives encouragement to you and I. God can use you. Because you have the same thing Epaphras had. You have a relational world. You have a group of people that you're doing life with, people that you have gained relational collateral with because you do life with them. They see you. They know you. They know what you talk about. They know the way you behave. And all of us would say, oh, man, that's a problem. I wish they didn't know all of me. We get it. None of us present a perfect representation of Jesus, but we do, even in our flawed ways. We represent a Jesus who absolutely is life-giving and life-transforming and a Jesus they need to know. We love at Trinity Church, I'm so excited about this new opportunity. We love to create environments where you can have Epaphras-like opportunities. One of them is coming up in October, it's called Christianity Explored. And what we're gonna do for seven Sunday nights from October into mid-November is we're going to host this time. It's about a meal, it's about a video, it's about a discussion. John and Sherry Skubik are gonna lead that time along with a team, and here's the sole purpose, you bringing someone from your relational world that's interested in knowing more. That's it. They're not convinced about Jesus yet, and it's not gonna be some just over and over again amount of information. It's gonna be a, a video with a conversation. Who is this Jesus, and what did he come to do? So here's what I wanna do. I wanted to plant this seed really early. I was so excited to hear we're gonna do this, and I want you to begin thinking and praying now. You got a month to think about who you're gonna invite. 
And I want you to think of it this way. I was talking to Steve a little bit, who's helped giving leadership to all this. And we talked about a little bit, like, who is the, the kind of person you ought to be thinking about and praying about? And think of it this way. In your relational world, you have a group of people who are already convinced. They're following Jesus, like all of us, they're doing it imperfectly, but they love him. They wanna live their life his way. That's not to, who to invite to this. They already know. Then you have another group of people in your relational world who don't know Jesus yet. They're not convinced he is who the Bible says he is. And you have a heart for them. You want them to know him. You have relational equity in their life. But here's the interesting thing. Within that group, you have different people at different stages. I'm thinking of my relational world and the people I do life with and those who aren't yet convinced that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And I think of them in two groups. There's one group. If you'll remember when Pastor Tom Mercer was here last, this time about last year, he talked about walking through kind of living this intentional influencer life. And he used two key words that we are people who invest and invite. Invest and invite. And as you've been investing in people's lives, people are kind of two different places, generally speaking. There's a group of people that you've had some conversations with, you've invited them to things maybe at Trinity before, you've been able to share with them a little bit about your faith, and there is a relative openness. There is an interest on their part. They don't believe yet, but they wouldn't be close to knowing more. They might even be interested. That's exactly who you should be praying about and inviting. Then there's another type of person in your relational world who you've been investing in, you pray for, you care about, but you can just tell there's just no interest or even the level of relational equity that you have is minimal. You've just met them two or three weeks ago. You don't really know where things are at. Here's the point. That first group is exactly who you should be praying about and thinking and inviting. The second group, I'd say, wait. I'd say, wait, because we want you to be wise in the way that you think about inviting people to things and saying, you know what? As I kind of, because in my life, I have names and faces that are coming to mind right now. And there's certain individuals I am, not just praying about, I am going to invite to come with me to Christianity Explored. I hope to see you there with your friend. And then there's other people that I know in my relational world. We have not built that trust yet. We've not built that equity. This would not go well if the first thing is ever I've invited them to do related to churches, come to this Christian Explored thing with me. They look at me and go, uh, that's a little quick, pal. Or uh, I don't even know what I know of you to even know why I would do that. Be thoughtful. Be thoughtful and prayerful. This goes on and we'll have signups for it soon. But I'm so excited that we're going to be able to offer this opportunity for you to be able to step out and say, you know what? I just want my friend to understand better who Jesus is. I think they're ready for that conversation. This is the litmus test that I would use. As I've explained what it is, it's a, a meal, a video, and a conversation. If you just logically think that's kind of the next step, that's like the next logical step in the conversation with my friend and this person in my world, that's exactly who you should invite. Use that for a litmus test on how to think about that and who to be praying about inviting in October. And we're excited about moving forward with that. Finally, I wanna to finish today with the, really the bulk of this prayer. Number three, the desired outcome of your life is to please God in every way. The desired outcome of your life is to please God in every way. We'll pick it up at verse nine. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. 
bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you, who's made this available for you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Look at these last words, they're so powerful. For he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is a yay God kind of statement. Would you help me? One, two, three, yay God. Look at those words, he's rescued us. I grew up in a church culture, and I remember all through the 70s and 80s, we talked a lot about how Jesus saves. I just was last week at somewhere, and I saw a guy wearing a black shirt and his white, bold letters, Jesus saves, and I love that. It's absolutely true. But somehow, in my mind, in that Christian culture, saves became synonymous with a religious idea. And and here, watch what I'm saying. It, It became synonymous with saves, like salvation and church and those things, but watch this. The word saves is actually very similar to the word rescue. And so English, through our English lens, the word rescue is so powerful. Because when I say Jesus saves and it means a whole lot of just kind of maybe churchy things, I forget it's really at the core exactly what the word rescue means. Incapable of helping yourself. You needed someone to pull you out. And it's a beautiful word to stop and process, God, that is what you've done for me. You have rescued me. Sometimes when we think about praying for other people, we stall for a couple of reasons. We stall, number one, because we kind of go, I I don't know what to pray for them about. I'd love to pray for them. I just don't know what to say. I don't know what's going on in their life. And here's the beauty. We have, like last week, Ephesians 3. We have this week, Colossians 1. There are so many beautiful, powerful prayers written in Scripture for you. Use this, and here's the interesting thing. When I read Colossians 1, I realize what wimpy prayers I pray for people. Oh, God, help them get over their cold. God, help them over here with their fine. And those are important things, but I'm saying, look what Paul's praying. I pray that they would live lives worthy of the calling they've received. And these are powerful prayers. And watch it, they're in the Bible for you. They can be the stuff of what you pray over other people. Use these prayers as defaults. Use them as an opportunity to say, I'm praying just last week, two people in my life who are going through some really challenging things, I sent one of them the Ephesians 3 prayer and the other, another prayer from Ephesians 1. I just said, this is what I'm praying over you today. Their response was so powerful to say, that's exactly what I need, thank you. Pray these things. But the other part might not be knowing what to pray. Sometimes it's just who to pray for. Like, I forget the people in my world. Guess what? We try to help you with that. You don't have to forget who's in your world. We have these prayer cards at every exit today. They're always there. Make a list. Take the time to go, you know what? These are the people I'm doing life with. These are the people I have relational equity. I am going to not only be praying for them, but then the way I live towards them, I'm going to live with intentionality praying for the opportunity to have that conversation, praying for the way to show the love of Christ to them in a moment of need. This is my people. This is who I'm praying for. And so use these cards. That's what they're meant to do to give you the idea of not just what to pray, but then who to pray for. Our leadership at Trinity Church is beginning to talk about some things we're using terms like strategic planning. And I was thinking about this prayer and I was realizing this prayer is a very strategic prayer. 
Look at the kinds of things. We're going to break it down for just a minute before we go today. This is what he does. If you were doing a strategic plan, you would have to first identify the who or the what. Like maybe it's like a, an organization or it's a sports team or it's an individual trying to get uh, move in a career. But not only would you identify the who, but you would identify from the beginning the desired outcome. If it was an organization, maybe it's increase in sales. If it's a, a, a sports team, that they would get more wins. If it's an individual, they'd get that job. You would, you would not only know the who, but you'd know the what. What is the goal? And as you look at this prayer, you see that Paul's prayer kind of fits this idea. Look at, we'll break it down. In your notes, he begins with what, thing, what he knows they'll need. He begins with necessary resources. He begins with the necessary resources. He says, hey, as I'm going to pray this over you, I'm already keenly aware of what you're going to need to accomplish this. Look in, at the phrase, be filled with the knowledge of God's will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That's right out of the gates. I know you're going to need this. And why? Here's the desired outcome in your notes. He continues by articulating the desired outcome of their lives. They need this wisdom. They need this understanding. Why? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. That's the end game. That's what Paul, if you boil it all down, I am praying for this. And then he goes on to describe what that desired outcome in your notes, what it looks like. Like that's kind of a big weighty phrase that you'd live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What does that actually mean? Well, look what he says. You would bear fruit in every good work. You'd grow in the knowledge of God. You'd be strengthened with, the, with power for endurance and patience, and you joyfully give thanks to the Father. He fleshes it out. This is what living a life worthy of the calling you've received looks like. And that last phrase, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, why? What are they giving joy about? And it's that great phrase we read, because he's rescued. And watch this. He says we, he rescued us. All throughout the letter, Paul is saying you. We're praying for you for this, for you for that. Then he says, but he rescued us. Paul is not outside the dilemma. Paul needed rescuing just like the Colossians did. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves by way of redemption and forgiveness of sins. So let's look at this briefly. Look at the necessary resources. The phrase was that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives Simply stated, Paul is praying that the Colossians would be able to discern and know what God's will is. And it doesn't that make sense? How am I going to live a life pleasing to God if I don't know what God wants? And you got to remember, he's writing to a group of people who have this letter. Literally, talk, this is their Bible. This is what they have. They might have had some people who had some Jewish backgrounds who would be able to reference the Old Testament. But by and large, Colossae, this was probably a group of people, this is all completely brand new. And Paul understands in order for you to live a life worthy of the Lord, you have to know what the Lord wants. Think of that through the lens of a parent. Those of you who are raising kids or have raised kids, if you were to go, hey, I want you to go and please me today. And they look at you like, and? No, you should know. Just go do it. Even when you tell them what pleases you, they don't do it. So why would they know how to do it if you don't tell them? You're so mad right now. Don't be mad. We're still friends. Love you. So, so this idea, that's what Paul's saying. How, how could they ever be pleasing to God if they don't know what God wants, if they don't know his will? So he's praying, I pray that you would know this will. And look how they would know it. They would know it because it comes from the Spirit. It's the kind of wisdom and knowledge that the Spirit gives. So this is powerful to understand. You've got to realize very little, if any, Scripture was in their hands, but they had the indwelling Spirit of God because they'd put their faith in Jesus. 
that that spirit would give you this kind of wisdom so you would know. Secondly, if that's the necessary resources, then back again to that desired outcome, that you would live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. The Greek word translated worthy, it simply means having worth that matches the actual value. Having worth that matches the actual value. So look what he's saying. I pray that you would live a life that matches. I pray you'd live a life that's consistent with the calling that you've received. Let's get off the wagon of trying to think that we can be a people who are gonna get that all together. Let's go back to the first century. These Colossians had lived apart from Jesus their entire lives, had only recently even come to know there was a Jesus and what he'd done for them. So out of whatever baggage they had, they heard these words. And these words were, I pray that you would live a life that matches the calling that Jesus has put on your life. No matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done before you heard his name, I pray that now, moving forward, you'd live a life that matches that calling. I think of the power of that. I just think of that, that idea of living life moving forward. Even though my past will affect some things about me, it does not determine me. Once I am in Christ, we're gonna see that phrase all over this book. Once I'm in Christ, I'm newly determined. I'm transformed and I can now live this way live in a manner. Think of it this way. Paul's saying, I pray that you would be able to, to, uh, to please this, this new Lord of your life, this new master. Think of it, just, just literally probably months before, at best a year before, they didn't even know who this master was. They didn't even care. But now all of a sudden that this group of Christians have heard and believed, now that's what they want. They want it more than anything. It makes me think of the parable that Jesus told. A, a master is getting ready to leave and he gives his servants different amounts of resources and he goes on a long trip and when he comes back, based on what they have done with what they received, he says to them, well done. That's what these people wanted to hear. Brand new to the faith. They don't know much, but they know what Jesus has done for them and they say, Jesus, we want to live in a life that matches the calling you've given us, and our goal is to hear you say, well done. That goal wasn't just for the Colossians 2,000 years ago. That goal's for us today as well. That's what we want to hear, and that's how we live. Look at the phraseology, by the way, through Paul's other letters, Ephesians 4.1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Same phrase. Ephesians 1.27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. By the way, those are also prison epistles. So, so as Paul's writing these letters, they all have this same theme of living a life that's worthy. First Thessalonians 2, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now see the vivid detail. What does living a life like that look like? What does it really flesh out? First, bearing fruit in every good work. I love this use of language, this, the obvious organicness of it. And I love that as we have been talking and praying at, at Trinity Church in this last year and even before that about our mission. I love that everything about our mission, even our branding, has this organic idea. To be a people rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. Our branding is a tree inside of an orange and everything about that speaks to the idea that this is something that God does. Not something we mechanistically manipulate, but something God does. Think of the idea of fruit. 
Just, just process that for, just think of a piece of fruit for a minute. That fruit, the only way that's going to happen is not just that there's a tree, but based on the tree, based on the soil, based on the air, based on the sun, all of these factors. That's why Paul could say to the Corinthians, I planted the seed, Apollo watered it, but God, God made it grow. So that's what we pray for. God, would you make us grow? God, would you do a work in lives? We know you're essential. We know you are critical to that whole equation. Think of the idea of the fruit and how pleasing it is to those who eat it. I just, I love to start my day with a bowl of cereal and berries all over the top of it. It just is so enjoyable to me to get my day started. And then I think of this. Think of what is inherently within fruit. Most of the fruit that you eat, even though we have uh, somehow organically engineered how to get seeds out of things, they, they have seeds within them. And they're usually the thing that bugs you. They get stuck in your teeth. I wish I had a seedless one of these. And you get all frustrated. That's how the next grove of that orange is going to grow, is that seed that you just crunched on. Inherently built into fruit is its next stage of life. It produces what is to come. All these things are beautiful pictures of the seed of the gospel and what it does in and through our lives. And look at this, and it's bearing fruit through good works. Look at Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest. And there's, there's, there's the harvest day, it's coming. Keep investing, keep developing. The second phrase, growing in the knowledge of God. Uh, this phrase, what Paul is basically saying is, it's not just getting smarter. It's getting a better understanding of the best topic ever, to get to know who the creator of the universe is. Paul prays this over them. I pray that you'd have a better understanding, better knowledge, better wisdom about the character of God. The next phrase is really lengthy, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. It's a mouthful of a phrase, but I want you to see this. The reason that it was easy to identify what the, the desired outcome is in this prayer is the word so that. So that is this really powerful phrase in the Bible. It's always a purpose idea. I'm, I, I'm saying this for this reason. So here it says, as we lay this all out, there's a so that in this phrase as well. Look at the first part. What comes before it is that they would be strengthened. And what comes on the back end, that you may have great endurance and patience. So here's another way of saying what Paul's praying for. Let's say you're up here with me, and I'm going to pray with you after service. And your name's Pete, and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray, God, would you please give Pete? amazing strength to be able to endure the challenges that are about to come his way. Like you haven't asked me for anything, but this is my prayer for you. God, would you help Pete? Give him all the strength he needs for all the great challenges and trials he's about to face. And Pete's going, don't pray that for me. I don't, the strength is great, but I don't want the trials to have to have the strength for that. I mean, don't pray that for me. But here's the thing. Paul boldly prays for strength through trials. Why? He's writing from jail. If this is going to happen to Paul, why won't it happen to them? I'm praying for you because I know challenge is coming. I know trials are on their ways. It's never been a question of if, but always when. So when they come, I'm praying for strength. Finally, he says that they would be a joyful people, that they would be a people joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Paul is intentionally praying that as they would be this grateful people, they would have a sense of joy. Joy comes from that. And, and joy over what? Look at that phrase again. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. 
For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, I just love that phrase so much. And I want to finish with this. I don't have time to, to blow it up like I'd like to, but just processes. Look at what we just read. The, the Greek word, we read about idea that Satan is from a dominion, a dominion of darkness. The Greek word really basic. It just simply means uh, a conferred, watch this, conferred power. Maybe a more understood word, delegated empowerment, a designated jurisdiction. The dominion of darkness is something that has been delegated to its leader. But watch this. A kingdom means a realm in which a king sovereignly rules. So in your notes as we finish today, never be confused. Satan only leads what God has designated. Satan only leads what God has designated him to lead. And for the time God determines, Jesus reigns supremely of his own sovereign rule. Never be confused that there are these two equal forces duking it out, Jesus and Satan, seeing who's gonna win. The victory's already been won. Jesus did that at the cross. He did that at the empty tomb. The Bible's replete with this truth. They are not equal forces. Satan only gets to rule what God allows him to, and only for as long as he allows. Jesus reigns supremely. Yay, God? Here's our now what idea as we walk out this week. Pray that the Jesus followers in your world would live lives pleasing to our God. And as we start this series, I want to do the exact same thing that Paul did as he prayed for the Colossians. Would you stand this morning? I just want to pray this final prayer over us that we would be a people who are blessed to live out Jesus' design just like Paul prayed for the Colossians. This is what he said. For this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Here it is again, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Yea, God. Yea, God. Yea, God.